Stimulants are one of the most effective meds in psychiatry, but they don't always bring ADHD to full recovery. Today, Dr. Richard Brown talks with us about how to address the symptoms that remain. Welcome to the Carlad Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlad Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. In this month's issue, we feature an interview with Dr. Richard Brown. Some of you may know Dr. Brown. He gives about 200 lectures a year and has written lots of books on natural and complementary therapies in psychiatry. We asked Dr. Brown about the role of natural therapies in ADHD, and his answer was so informative that we're just going to play it here in full. So I I feel like we can help patients with ADD better than any other diagnostic group in psychiatry. I mean, stimulants work for many people. You know, you'll see different things in literature, 60 to 80%. But of course, there are side effects, and I get to see the ones who don't respond. You know, the other thing is they only help certain aspects of ADHD, and a lot of other stuff remains. What kind of symptoms tend to remain after stimulant use? Well, I think there's still a lot of executive system dysfunction and higher level cognitive issues. And then, of course, there are comorbid conditions, dyslexia or processing things. Two things I try to ask all of my patients to get neuropsych testing one way or another. I mean, it can be expensive privately, but like in New York, I have them go to a graduate school of psychology and be tested by somebody who's got a really good supervisor, for example. That's one way of bringing the price down. And what I look for is processing deficits and which kind of processing problems they have, as well as working memory. So two of the biggest comorbid problems I see are slow processing of certain kinds of material, either visual or verbal or both. And that can be really tough in school or at work. And then dyslexia often relates to that because I see it as partly a processing problem. And there are alternative things that can be helpful for that. And then the other thing is decreased working memory. And decreased working memory correlates with poor performance in work or school. For those of us who haven't done the testing, can you tell us what would give you a hint in a patient that they had each of these three deficits from their everyday life? So when, when patients or parents often ask, what is working memory? I say, on your computer, there's a clipboard. And your own brain has a clipboard, and it can keep certain things in active play when you're trying to solve a problem. And the average for most people is around three to seven things at one time. But you do better if you keep it toward the higher end of the range. You know, so many of the people I see with ADHD or ADD, inattentive, have major problems. You know, they may have a hard time keeping three things in mind. You know, and I ask for a history of dyslexia. Ask them, you know, do they have trouble taking notes in class? Do they do better if they see it? Do they do better if they hear it? Those kinds of things. And better if they see it versus better if they hear it. Which one would be more dyslexia? I'd say the same is more likely to correlate with that. But in a sense, small children are dyslexic. And they're often seeing things in pictures. And they haven't discriminated down to word levels. And, you know, I also explained to them this. This can help you be very creative, and it's a nice skill to have when you're an adult. 
But instead of always having to look at things this way, we'd like for you to learn another way of processing things. And the other thing is, is often they don't understand, well, I'm getting by, especially if they're intelligent, if they have a, a pretty high IQ. You know, why do I, why should I work on my processing? And I'm like, well, it doesn't just go into your work at school. Is there a sport you like to play, whether it's tennis or soccer? And you will be able to make a connection with the ball much better when your processing is better. Now, most people don't learn dyslexia in residency. So can you just define it like a general? Well, it's where people reverse letters, typically. That's how it will show up. And numbers, too? Numbers, too. Yeah, kind of symbols get reversed. So it's uh, going to show up in reading and math. Right. You said they do better at seeing things, but of course that's not seeing the chalk writing on the board. Right. They, they're seeing at a different level in a sense. Why did you say they're not as good at listening? Sometimes they're not. Yeah. So sometimes they can't follow a spoken lecture, but they can read it better. Can you explain that yeah. since it's a problem of reading, why that is? Well, it depends on the person. So people have different deficits of different kinds. Are you and saying you can have dyslexia of the spoken word? Yes, absolutely. And that can, that can also make a difference in terms of career choices. I remember years ago, a patient was, it might, be, it might have been a case example in, in the book on non-drug treatments for ADHD, where the guy came to me with, he was sent by a clinician for treatment-resistant depression. And I interviewed him and I felt like, He's not depressed, but he's very unhappy with his life and his career. He was a photographer and he just was, his parents had to keep giving him money to keep it going. And when I interviewed him, I began to feel that there was something subtly wrong. And when I looked at his pictures, it was like he wasn't good at creating the picture for his clients. And I sent him for neuropsych testing and said, I think there's some brain damage here. And let's see how he actually compares to other people in terms of processing visual information. And it was interesting that they found a spot in the cortex, in the vertex, where he was like zero ability at looking at and absorbing visual information. And if you're trying to have a career as a photographer, that would be the last deficit you'd want to have. And his parents somehow. I guess he liked taking pictures when he was a child. And they thought, oh, he'd be a good photographer. And they pushed him to do that. And it was just the wrong thing. And he had to get some career counseling, change careers. And then he was totally fine. It wasn't a matter of giving him a more powerful set of antidepressants, in other words. Um, so how would um, slow processing speed show up in work or the classroom? Often they will have trouble completing an assignment or a test on time. They're always late. And they don't have enough time to answer the questions. Yeah, so, there could be other reasons for that. I was struggling with word recall in that interview. The word I was looking for was sluggish cognitive tempo, not slow cognitive tempo. This is a new diagnosis, and it often occurs with ADHD. These patients with sluggish cognitive tempo daydream a lot. They get bored easily. 
They feel spacey or lethargic, and they don't process information quickly or accurately. As Dr. Brown said, it's been around for a long time, and it's gone by different names, but a group led by Russell Barkley at Harvard are arguing for sluggish cognitive tempo as a legitimate diagnosis. In this month's issue, we covered the first randomized controlled trial of a stimulant, Vivance, for sluggish cognitive tempo in ADHD. And like Dr. Brown predicted, the medication helped, but the results were mixed, and it certainly didn't work all the way. In the second half of our interview, we asked Dr. Brown how to help these associated symptoms. There aren't many good medication trials for dyslexia or working memory, but he pointed us towards some complementary and alternative treatments that have evidence. For dyslexia, he uses piracetam. For working memory, American ginseng. He also uses the alpha agonists clonidine and guanfacine for working memory. I first met Dr. Brown 20 years ago when he gave a talk in Charleston, South Carolina. After the conference, he had magically switched from his suit and tie into Appalachian hiking gear and was off to enjoy the outdoors. He's a rare combination of researcher and clinician, a psychiatrist who's willing to think outside the box, but also takes a skeptical look at the evidence. So I was excited in this interview to ask him about all the new randomized controlled trials that I've seen coming out for natural therapies in ADHD. Things like vitamin D, iron, zinc, resveratrol, omega-3, saffron, coenzyme Q10, or even a proprietary plant extract called pycnogenol. But Dr. Brown shook his head about all these except that last one, pycnogenol. They all have positive controlled trials in ADHD. But the thing is, he just doesn't see that much benefit when he's tried them out in practice. It's a problem I run to him to as well. Few things that look good on paper really make a difference in my patients. I asked Dr. Brown why this is. Part of the reason for that is I think when people start doing research, their enthusiasm, and often colleagues either in their specialty or related specialties, they're enthusiastic and they send patients. And I think in the beginning, sometimes you get a skewed population who's more likely to respond or I also feel there's a powerful Hawthorne effect. That means if you introduce a new program into the factory, the factory oh, right. workers do better for a while. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yep. Okay. And, and there's so many factors that go on. I mean, I did, I did, did NIH and drug company research with mentors of mine for years. But I still remember years later, I had a, uh, a colleague called me up and he said, I got to talk to you about something. I said, well, why me? He said, you're the only one who might, I think, listen to me. He said. I'm doing research. I have a team of people who do the ratings and treat the patients. And there's one guy. It doesn't matter whether it's the active drug or placebo. His patients do worse than any of the other clinicians. He said, I don't know what to do. I said, you get rid of him. He says, well, he seems perfectly fine. He relates to me okay. He relates to his colleagues. I said, there's something about him with his patients. And he needs to be in a different part of the field not taking care of patients directly without therapy or some other kind of treatment. And it's unlikely at his stage of life that he's going to go for that. 
Now, it sounds like what you do is read the research, the basic science, the controlled trials. I imagine you look at the effect size. I mean, it means something. But ultimately, right. you then try this out on yourself and in your patients. And right. do you see it with your eye? Do you see a difference? Is that right? I got to see a difference. Uh, you know, and, and my feeling is you can get fancy statistics that show stuff. But if you can't see it more easily, use them in a whole bunch of patients. And if there's an effect, it's a small one. I like going for bigger effects. Dr. Richard Brown is an Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons, and he has a practice in Kingston, New York. He has also written over 80 articles and books on psychopharmacology, including the 2012 book, Non-Drug Treatments for ADHD. The first muscarinic receptor agonist for schizophrenia, a psychotherapy that treats social anxiety disorder in half the sessions psilocybin-induced mania, and a personality trait that predicts whether a patient with depression will respond to an SSRI or mirtazapine. That's just a few of the daily research updates we've shared in the past two weeks on social media, and we'll have more in the weeks to come. Join the fun and follow along. Search for Chris Aiken, MD on LinkedIn or my Twitter handle at ChrisAikenMD. The Carlatin Report is one of the few CME publications that depends entirely on subscribers. Get your unbiased CME for this podcast through the link in the show notes. And thank you for helping us stay free of commercial support.